0: Welcome to Episode 5 of Shadows of the Empire, A Tale of Two Armies. To this date, there's a debate on the number of Japanese troops that were actually involved in the invasion of Malaya and Singapore. Post-war Japanese military history portrayed the invasion force as small as possible, while British accounts tried to maximize the size of the Japanese forces as large as possible. Obviously, each side has a motive for these differing accounts. Our best estimates have the Japanese forces at at about 60,000 men against a Malaya command of 86,000. And despite the protestations from some sources, it's highly unlikely that the Japanese ever managed to equal, let alone exceed, British Empire forces. So the question remains, how the heck did they win? And so quickly, and with relatively light losses. This episode will take a deep dive into both armies and take a look at their differences, not just in equipment, but doctrine, training, and the morale of the men. While this episode will focus on Malaya command as a whole, particular attention will be spent on the 3rd Indian Corps, the principal field unit Percival commanded early in the battle, and the men who would have to face the Japanese first. And to understand the men and morale situation of 3rd Corps, we have to look at the political situation in The Jewel and the Crown the British in India. As the campaign unfolded, the Japanese employed political officers to demoralize the enemy and particularly encourage defections among the British Indian units. After the fall of Singapore, the Indian National Army will will be formally established under Japanese tutelage. The INA was composed of both POWs from Malaya Command, and Indians recruited from within the colony to serve as a vanguard for the Japanese advance into India to topple the Viceroy's government. As politics will play a key role in the campaign, we should take a deeper look at the relationship between the Empire and British India during these years. For Britain during both World Wars, India was not just an economic engine providing raw materials, but also the manpower reserve that London drew on for the British Indian Army. In the 19th century, the standing British Indian Army was not just an occupation force in India, but was was also on call to counter Russian advances south through Central Asia as part of the Great Game, and to put down any insurgencies or revolts from the Middle East to East Asia. India, unlike Canada, New Zealand, or Australia, was not a dominion. It did not elect a prime minister to represent its interests with the crown. It did not have home rule. Instead, it was directly ruled by the Viceroy as a colony, an arrangement which was showing its age heading into the First World War. In the Great War, well over a million Indians volunteered for the army fighting on the Western Front, Africa, and the Middle East. The Indian politicians who would dominate the push for independence in the 1940s endorsed the Great War and urged men to volunteer. Mohandas Gandhi was a sergeant major in the British Army during the Second Boer War and Zulu War in 1906. Even during his political activities during the Great War, Gandhi was a recruitment officer for the British Indian Army and gave his unconditional support for the war unlike some other Indian politicians. But if, in exchange, the Indians expected more home rule and a path to dominion status after World War I, they were in for a rude surprise. All movement towards self-government slowed down as the government resisted making political concessions. The 20s and 30s were the peak of Indian nationalism as boycotts, marches, demonstrations, and popular mobilization picked up steam to change India's status in the empire. And Indian national politics shifted from demands for dominion status to full independence going into the 1940s. As the Second World War began, it was naturally expected India would once again gear up to send men in uniform. And all in all, over 2.5 million Indians will volunteer to fight for the crown during World War II, the largest volunteer army ever. But politically, a lot had changed in India between the World Wars. The Indian political class did not fall into line to support this war, and servicemen felt a deeper divide with regards to their donning of the uniform. And when British India declared war on Nazi Germany, not a single Indian was consulted before Indian lives and treasure were committed. Surely, the Indian political class would have demanded political concessions, but given their support during the Great War, It was not necessarily a foregone conclusion that they wouldn't support Britain's cause in the Second World War. After the strong backlash in India against the unilateral actions of the Viceroy, London began backpedaling in an effort to get the main Indian political parties on board with the war effort. These efforts would culminate with the Cripps mission in 1942 that promised elections and dominion status after the war, which for Indians this time looked like an empty promise. Given Britain had just surrendered in Singapore in February 1942, this offer was described as, quote, a post-dated check drawn on a falling bank, unquote, by Gandhi. By the end of 1942, there would be a movement, the Quit India Campaign, which involved a national scale of demonstrations, boycotts, and revolts. 100,000 Indians were jailed, and a massive amount of British resources would need to be spent in order to stabilize British rule in India. And at the same time, Britain was fighting the Second World War, and it had already conceded home rule. Now this may be my hindsight or my modern sensibilities, but Britain's approach to India at this time just beggars belief. Who is to know how history would have played out had Britain granted dominion status in the 1930s? Now, while this takes us past Malaya and the Singapore campaign, it is important to put into context the politics in India and the atmosphere during 1941 and 1942. British rule in India itself was under challenge, and the Japanese will actively seek to exploit the situation. But what of the men itself? How did British imperial politics manifest itself in the Indian Army? A changing army. Given that Britain's political status in India was unstable, to say the least, the army had to be structured accordingly. During World War II, a standard British Empire infantry division was approximately 10,000 to 12,000 men in three infantry brigades, along with supporting arms like artillery, signals, engineering, and medical units. Each infantry brigade, and again, this is very roughly, numbered about 3,000 men, split amongst three battalions of approximately 1,000 men. This basic structure held true no matter the infantry division was British, Indian, Canadian, or ANZAC. Unique to the British Indian Army was the brigade composition. Typically, one white battalion was placed alongside two Indian battalions, much like the british army the british indian army utilized a regimental system but it served a very important purpose in india besides fostering a love for the regiment units were intentionally recruited amongst very narrow regional or religious lines even down to ethnic or cultural caste at the company level in order to further the british credo of divide and rule while the british portrayed the system as a requirement for indian troops in order to have them serve supposedly the prejudice among Indians for other Indians was that strong, it can't be denied it served a purpose for the government. As Kaushik Roy relates in his book, quote, "...organization of the different communities within a battalion prevented the emergence of any potential anti-British feeling within the different Indian communities, and the British continuously encouraged competition among the different communities within a battalion." Unquote. And given that the Indian soldier could not be directly motivated by a sense of nationalism without raising some uncomfortable questions, the British sought to, quote, utilize the hereditary fighting traditions of a caste or tribe to sustain the morale of the Indian soldiers. The Indian army thus encouraged tribal prejudices and caste exclusiveness, unquote. Academics have posited that the British Indian army was actually more caste conscious than Indian society itself. This policy leads to problems, however. It encourages recruitment within particular communities, and as the war dragged on, the limited number of suitable recruits within a caste, for example, hampered replacements. In addition, the British Indian Army had a unique system of VCOs, Viceroy Commissioned Officers, who were Indians serving effectively as warrant officers, liaising between the troops and the white officers. And the issue of finding suitable replacement VCOs for casualties or expansion was another acute problem that arose as time went on. Change began later in the Second World War, as the British found that narrow caste and ethnic recruitment was becoming a serious problem in finding the numbers of suitable recruits. The so-called list of, quote, martial races, unquote, the communities which served as the recruitment pools for the army, was updated to widen recruitment to South India, including castes such as Brahmins or minorities like Dakani Muslims and Indian Christian communities. This diversified the army and gave it a wider and effective recruitment base. However, these reforms would occur after the Malaya campaign, during the reinvention of the Indian Army, as it geared up for fighting in Burma. As a further postscript, it's notable that after independence, the regimental system was maintained, but recruitment along caste lines was largely eliminated. Regional units were intentionally mixed, and officers from different communities were put into command. For example, a South Indian officer may lead a predominantly Sikh unit, for example, or a Sikh may lead a predominantly East Indian unit. After independence, new regiments would be national and recruited as widely as possible in order to make the army as heterogeneous as possible and to promote a national identity. Back to our narrative. The Indian Mutiny of 1857 was just 80 years in the past to the Second World War, about the same distance in time between us and the Second World War. As I alluded to before, Britain had not reached a political settlement in India and was wary of raising a large Indian army. By the end of the war, India would send 2.5 million men to fight, and this force would grow at an astonishing rate. In September 39, the army numbered at 237,000 men. And between May 1940, you know, think Dunkirk, through September 1941, 5,200 officers were inducted and over 550,000 men in other ranks recruited. Notably, of these 5,200 officers, 1,400 were Indian, including those holding various types of commissions. By October 1941, the Indian Army numbered 820,000 men, of which a quarter million were already overseas. An army this big needed a large officer cohort for command and the Indian Army was a choice posting for officer cadets graduating from Sandhurst before the war. The top 60 cadets were given the opportunity to serve in India, and as such the British Indian Army was in no way the poor relation when it came to officer talent. The British Indian Army officer was part soldier, part linguist, and part diplomat, and it was a very highly coveted posting, bringing with it the imperial grandeur of serving overseas. But the officer class was being kept solely for whites, and up, up until the Great War, Indians were in large part barred from assuming a commission. For decades, the Indian political party saw the opening of officer ranks to Indians as a prerequisite for India to have home rule or eventual independence, and began lobbying London to change the discrimination policy, keeping Indians out as early as right after the Great War. After the war, 10 Indian cadets were enrolled at Santoris annually, and after 1928, that number was doubled to 20. From 1932, officer training began in India itself as the Indian Military Academy at Dehradun was established to effectively mirror the curriculum and structure of Sandhurst. But even these reforms and changes were token at best. Between 1919 and 1939, only 250 Indians were commissioned as officers. The Skeen Commission in 1925 planned for a very gradual Indianization of the officer class, reaching 50% only in 1952 as you would have it, five years after the British would eventually depart India. Indian officers were also prevented from commanding white officers, largely being assigned to separate Indian units and their ranks were stifled such that they didn't at this stage take command of units bigger than companies. After the Dunkirk evacuation, the policy had to change as the demand for officers exploded. Some pre-war British Indian officers were transferred back to the home army as it sought to rebuild and some of the fresh British officers sent back to India lacked the training or aptitude for service in India. Many didn't speak Hindustani and thus couldn't speak to their own soldiers. To address these problems, some of the previous roadblocks to Indian officers were slowly lifted as Indians could now join as King's Commissioned Indian Officers, KCIOs, who were the regulars receiving a commission after extensive officer training, versus Emergency Commissioned Indian Officers, ECIOs, who were typically middle-class Indians offered a wartime commission, similar to practice in the UK. Notably, British civilians from the various dominions were also offered these emergency commissions in India in order to balance the number of Indian and white officers. Nevertheless, the impact was significant. By January 1942, there were 596 Indian officers, a notable increase from October 1939 when it numbered less than 400. These Indian officers will eventually lead the units that will defeat the Japanese at Kohima and Imphal, chase the Japanese out of Burma, and land back in Malaya in 1945. However, we are getting ahead of ourselves. In 1941, at the beginning of Indianization, there were many problems between the largely Indian junior officers and their British counterparts. The strange thing about the British Empire is the difference in racial attitudes between the British in Britain and the British in the colonies. Harjinder Singh, an Indian Air Force officer, describes myriad instances of British underhandedness to stifling his career in India, whether it was denial of rank, pay, or even adequate living quarters. But when he visits England in 1944, he's struck with admiration for the singular purpose of the British people to win the war, and gets a much warmer reception and wide acceptance in Britain. In the book Spitfire Singh, his visit to England completely changes his outlook on the British. And he wonders how things can be so different between life in Britain versus its colonies. Malaya and Singapore in 1941 was a world where the color line between Indians and whites was very strongly maintained. Future Indian Lieutenant General Harbash Singh was serving at the time in the 22nd Indian Brigade, leading a company in the 5th Sikhs. He says, quote, everything for the white man was, was exclusive. Clubs, swimming pools, buses, railway carriages, even sheds against the rain, unquote. Officer clubs in the colony were segregated racially, keeping out Indian officers even if they outranked their white compatriots. When the Raja of Parak invited the officers of the 5th Sikhs to dinner, the the invitation was only extended to the white officers, excluding the Indians. When the battalion CO and white officers accepted the invitation, the Indian officers were quite insulted. Not to mention, there were different pay scales in Malaya Command. While a British lieutenant was paid 600 rupees a month plus allowances, a King's commissioned Indian officer was allotted 400 inclusive allowances, and emergency commissioned officers were compensated even less. This reminds me of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, the 2nd African American Regiment in the Union Army in the American Civil War, being paid less than their white counterparts, uh, a situation that uh, was not very good for morale. There were also incidences of rude behavior of junior British officers to ranking Indian officers, and some British soldiers did not salute Indian officers. This kind of apartheid that was allowed to exist in Malaya was poisoned to the army from a morale standpoint. As these units were heading into combat, I can't imagine a worse factor at play than animosity between the white and Indian officers in 3rd Corps. These officers would be expected to watch each other's backs, to hold the line when Japanese units infiltrate, and to cover each other in disciplined withdrawals. As Brian Farrell states succinctly in his book, quote, giving someone a commission, sending him overseas, and asking him to defend you with his life, then banning him from your swimming club because he was black, was hardly the best way to pull an imperial force together. But it happened in Malaya and Singapore time and again. This made it even harder to defend a multiracial empire in which some were more equal than others, unquote. Discontent was not limited to the officer class. Indian rank-and-file soldiers were more politicized than in the First World War, and despite their loyalty to the crown, may have largely agreed with the Indian nationalist demands for more freedoms. Malaya Command did not help things when in May 1941, the 9th Indian Division was used to suppress strikes among the Indian mine workers. Indian soldiers did not sign up for overseas service to violently suppress the aspirations of other Indians striking for better and conditions. A year earlier, the 4th Battalion Hyderabadi Regiment had two companies refuse orders when an Indian officer was sent back to India on disciplinary grounds, for expressing views that were found to be objectionable. During this mini-mutiny, a nearby British unit, the soon-to-be legendary 2nd Battalion the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, were put on alert. One company had to be disarmed, and it fell on an Indian officer, Major K.S. Demaya, a company commander in the battalion, to quietly resolve the standoff with the two mutiny companies and returned normalcy to the unit. These units were troubling the Malaya command and, quote, the brigade commander personally briefed all of the officers of the other battalions on the facts of the case, unquote. Oh, and about pay scales, similar to Indian officers, an Indian private soldier was paid one third of what his British counterparts were paid. The racial discrimination and the ensuing blows to morale within the Indian units was a problem completely of making of the British authorities and own goal and it was a weakness the Japanese will exploit to the utmost in the coming campaign. We will cover Major Fujiwara's unit and the initial groundwork that led to the Japanese-led Indian National Army in a later episode. Milking. As the British and British Indian armies geared up for war, especially after Dunkirk, the expansion was done through a process called milking. A portion of soldiers, NCOs, and officers were taken out of trained or veteran units to become the nucleus of a new unit. Fresh recruits were brought into that first unit to make up the numbers. The idea is quite simply, the mixing of veterans will raise the skill level and install backbones for fresh recruits. The British Indian Army was conducting this process on a large scale to achieve a tenfold expansion throughout the army, and that applied to Malaya Command. For example, the 5th Sikhs landed in country after milking with 450 raw recruits and British officers who couldn't speak to their men in their own language. In the 4th Hyderabad, half of the NCOs and VCOs, the backbone of any army, was new to the job and new to the men. Milking not only introduces a skill gap between the recruits and veterans, but also damages the unity of a force where suddenly soldiers are serving alongside strangers, especially in the Indian Army where caste, religious, and regional identities were were relied on to buttress morale instead of nationalism. The problems of milking are solved in two ways. Time spent together to have the men familiarize with each other, and intensive training to bring up the skill level across the units. As we will see, Malaya Command didn't have a lot of time, and what time it did have, it didn't spend on training. One point on milking. It is commonly pointed out as one of the main problems in 3rd Indian Corps, but Field Marshal Wavell after the battle pointed out that, quote, the milking had been no more severe than, for instance, in the 4th and 5th Indian Division which succeeded in maintaining their standard of, ef- of efficiency in the Middle East theater of war, unquote. The 4th Indian Division would be the most famous Indian Army Division of the war. It was the infantry force married with the Desert Rats in Operation Compass, which defeated the Italian Army and forced Germany to commit the Africa Corps in North Africa. It would go on to fight at El Alamein, including the key and largely forgotten prelude at Revesit Ridge in the First Battle of El Alamein, and in Tunisia and Italy, Officers like Bennett later laid the collapse of Malaya command on the Indian contingent and their inherent, quote, softness. But this is just racialized nonsense and doesn't square with the performance of the British Indian Army units in other theaters at the same time as the Battle of Malaya. The Diggers. The relations between the Australian forces and the British were considerably better, but not without its own problems. The Australian and British troops frequently got into pub brawls, but underneath what would be expected to happen between young men posted far from home, there was a conflict emanating from what the Aussies deemed, quote, European snobbery and the condescension from the British. While the Brits didn't appreciate the Australians boasting of better pay and food, the diggers interacted better with the local Malays than the British did, reflecting the geographic and class differences between the two forces. These differences were by no means as serious as what trouble was brewing in the 3rd Indian Corps, but these kinds of altercations eventually filtered all the way to the top, where Bennett raised these issues with Percival and Heath, reflecting their importance. The bigger problem for Percival with regards to the Australians was not the chips on the shoulders between the men, but what his authority was over the 8th Division. Given that Bennett had the right to refer decisions back to Canberra, Percival found that he had to employ and direct the Australian troops separately from the rest of Malaya Command. As Percival relates in his memoirs, Difficulties arose, however, from time to time in connection with certain administrative matters common to the army as a whole in which Gordon Bennett claimed special treatment for his force, thus creating a difference between Australian and, and other troops. I felt that differences of this sort was unfortunate as my policy was to treat all troops alike. Gordon Bennett has stated that he had special instructions from his government defining the position of his force in the Army of Malaya. I consider it most desirable from every point of view that the position of such a force should be clearly defined and that there should be no doubt in anybody's mind as to what that position is. It was not so in Malaya. Percival rated the Australian troops very well, saying, There was excellent material in the division both in the ranks and among the commissioned officers. It suffered, however, from a lack of up-to-date senior officers trained in the methods of modern war. Many of those in responsible positions of command, although they had fought with distinction in the First World War, had little or no practical training for many years prior to the outbreak of the Second World War. This was to prove a serious handicap. It is not sufficient that a commander should be merely brave himself, though that is naturally an important attribute. He should also be fully versed in the conduct of modern war and, as far as possible, be practiced in the art of command under control under conditions approximating as nearly as possible to those of actual war, unquote. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that he's referring to Bennett himself. Notably, Percival found that despite the Australian division only being composed of two combat brigades, it was unusually top-heavy with staff officers. Japanese Army Morale The British consistently underrated the Japanese army with a mix of racism and wishful thinking. The 11th Indian Division considered the Japanese army as somewhere between the Italian and Afghan armies in effectiveness. Nonsense like the Japanese having poor eyesight, being small and weak was the conventional wisdom among British officers. As Koshik Roy relates, quote, Gordon Bennett believed that the Japanese would be untrained, unquote. The truth, of course, was very different the Japanese had already engaged in large conflicts with the Soviet Union and China. Its units were blooded and had extensive experience in amphibious landings, a key feature of the Malaya campaign. The Japanese army had a very rigorous training regiment, and Farrell relates, quote, Life with a private soldier in the pre-war IJA was an experience matched in harshness and intensity by only the French Foreign Legion or the German Waffen-SS in Western armies. Boys grew up in a culture of worshipping the empire and were groomed to accept that they would die in combat for the glory of Japan." Unquote. The Imperial Japanese Army at this stage was a highly motivated force, united to win a Pacific Empire. The morale and fighting spirit was not a factor the Japanese took for granted. They fully expected to overcome a larger force such as Balaya Command through a mix of doctrine, speed, and above all, fighting spirit. Where the IJA units faced material shortages, The motivated and loyal men would overcome these problems to win. Compared to divisions and problems in Malaya Command, the situation was night and day with the Japanese invasion force. Sweat in peace to avoid bleeding in war The war in Malaya was a jungle war, and it required a completely different approach and new training and doctrine. And this is where Percival's hands-off approach becomes a problem. There was no unified training manual to teach units how to operate in the jungle small unit tactics, ambushes, any of the like. Malaya command devolved training decisions to individual commanders, and many of them rode off the jungle as impassable and left it at that. And one thing should be mentioned about the general culture in Singapore at the time. It was regarded as a generally quiet theater where officers can enjoy a social life. It was Singapore slings at the Raffles Hotel, afternoon naps and leisure. In the tropical heat of Southeast Asia, Not too many officers took the time to get their battalions out into the bush, and this would prove to be a fatal mistake. What little training circulars were sent to units were disseminated sloppily, and who's to say anyone even read them? And even if there was an inclination to learn the art of jungle fighting, most of Malaya command didn't have the time. As the situation deteriorated in the Far East, units were spending their time digging anti-tank ditches and trenches and building machine gun nests. The 2nd Argyles and 4th Hyderabad Battalions spent the whole month of May 1941 improving defenses and did no training. Now couple this with the fact that milking had occurred and many of the men and NCOs were raw and relatively untrained. This is a disastrous combination. So why was this the case? Why did the troops have to build defenses? Couldn't that have been outsourced to civilian construction crews? Any decision by a division commander to expend money or commandeer land for defenses, Had to go to multiple departments in Singapore, and in some cases London. General Percival, the head of Malaya Command, was given a free hand in the case of war breaking out to spend, and this is no joke, only up to 500 pounds. Before the war, that threshold was even lower. Listeners to this podcast have more authority to spend money than General Percival. Anything more than that would need approval from the War Office. And naturally, engineering firms Who would be doing this work weren't going to start until the necessary down payments were done by the army and anything over a tiny amount needed an approval process. The civil administration also objected to Malaya Command building defenses in the rubber plantations in the case that the trees would be damaged, and in one instances defenses were denied because they would impact a golf course. Absurd! The civil admin also wanted to underpay the workers who would actually build the defenses, which of course led to fewer and fewer takers for the function. In fact, as late as November 1941, Percival declared he would unilaterally raise wages. Percival, in his memoirs, sums it up more politely than I would have in his shoes. Quote, The centralized system of financial control tended to have a crippling effect. When things go wrong, the public are naturally inclined to blame the man on the spot. Why was this not done, and why was that not done? The answer, generally, is that the man on the spot was not a free agent. He certainly was not in Malaya in peacetime. Obviously, he cannot be given unlimited financial powers, but when he is dealing with such an important link in our system of of imperial defense as Singapore, he can and should be given wider financial powers, in consultation with his financial advisor than was the case in pre-war days, or else it should be made clear that he cannot be held responsible. In contrast to all this, the IJA took the development of a training manual very seriously. The Director of Planning and Operations for the 25th Army, Colonel Masanubu Suji was assigned the task on New Year's Day in 1941 to develop a manual for jungle warfare. He established a Taiwan research center to study everything from tropical diseases to aerial photo reconnaissance in Malaya to build a combat manual for the troops. There were 10 major field exercises to test how units were to advance in the jungle, for the Japanese had to learn it as much as the British did. There was also a mini simulation of a march as long as the distance between Thailand to Singapore. Lower unit command was emphasized, and the Twenty Fifth Army would advance as a light infantry force, with mountain artillery and tanks to be used on strong points that stood in the way. As much as possible, infantry would infiltrate defenses and flank the enemy using the jungle. The Japanese were quite confident the weak foreigners unquote, wouldn't accept the challenge of a jungle war. The Japanese also learned the art of night attacks, which had a terrifying effect on Allied troops who were subjected to it for the first time. All in all, the Japanese approach was well suited to Malaya and their adversaries, Malaya Command. Meanwhile, given that Malaya Command is not going to have the large-scale training that it needed, Percival accepted that focusing on at least getting the lower unit training up to snuff while the defenses were being built was the best that could be done. What training the Indian units had in India prior to arrival in Malaya was geared toward action in the Middle East and North Africa, basically the Desert War. Most of the infantry had not so much as seen a tank as of yet, and the gunners were not trained to work with the infantry, a key skill given that artillery was one of the few advantages the Empire units had over the Japanese. In the absence of adopting jungle war, the Empire forces fell back on classic British doctrine, that of the set-piece battle. The infantry would hold fixed battle lines and rely on the artillery to smash the enemy. The emphasis would be fixed defenses and holding physical objectives, the kinds of combat that prevailed at the Western Front in the Great War. 3rd Indian Corps especially was a truck-borne force. The units were geared toward the Desert War and planned to fight in Malaya Motorized Campaign. Once in the battle zone, the trucks were actually a liability. They had no armor, and once the troops were off them, they had to be guarded themselves. In the rubber plantations, there was no space for the truck to get off the road, and a Japanese ambush with a few light machine guns would wreak havoc on truck columns. British thinking in general was far too focused on roads. Units were to defend crossings and set up roadblocks. Controlling a sector meant controlling a road. This was another fatal error. The Japanese would time and again leave the road, enter the jungle, and flank the Empire units. And given the British units' discomfort with operating off the road and reliance on motor transport, News of a Japanese unit outflanking a defense and cutting the road behind them caused panic for unit after unit in the campaign. Whatever little training done in Malaya Command was unrealistic and half-hearted. Units took shortcuts in training depending on motor transport instead of marching. In one instance, training was canceled due to rainfall. I'll repeat that. Training was canceled in Malaya because of rain. Exercises paused for hot meals and stopped at nighttime. Keep in mind that the Japanese excelled in nocturnal attacks, and the skills gap between the two sides was very wide in Malaya. One note to mention is that despite the weaknesses of 3rd Indian Corps, the 8th Australian Division was only marginally better. It received Desert War training in Australia before its induction in Malaya, and did undergo local training to adapt to the jungle, but this proficiency is really relative to the rest of Malaya Command. As Kashik Roy notes in his book, quote, Timothy Hall writes that at the beginning of the Asia-Pacific War, most of the personnel of the Australian military force were neither disciplined nor trained. This assertion applies to a great extent to Gordon Bennett's force also. Unquote. I would, if you would like to dive deeper on the Australian forces in Malaya, I'd highly recommend an excellent podcast called The Principles of War, which is hosted by an Australian officer. He does an excellent job of recounting the campaign through the lens of the Aussies. Besides training, another factor that should be mentioned is physical fitness. The British Empire units did not emphasize marching and physical endurance, which were the hallmarks of jungle warfare. Besides not engaging in field exercises, the overemphasis on motorization meant that units did not develop the physical stamina for combat in the bush. Quoting Kaushik Roy again, quote, One journalist had noted that the Allied troops had lost the art of marching and the Allied infantry failed to develop light infantry techniques to get behind the hostile formations and conduct infiltration tactics, unquote. This reluctance to march and get into the jungle was not shared by the Japanese. Roy again, quote, Japanese soldiers were famous for making long marches, unquote. He mentions that one regiment in the mid-1930s would march for 56 miles a day, beginning at 5 a.m. Japanese infantry trade trained hard physically, not just marching, but bayonet and range practice, and to a much higher standard than Allied troops. Roy goes on to say, quote, the American army, like the British and Indian armies, was not trained to march hard and fight hard. And he quotes Colonel Milton Hall of the American army accepts this contrast with the Japanese in the following words, our pre-war training and marching and endurance, I think, lacked reality most of all. The way to train troops for the rigors they are bound to meet sooner or later in war is to give them actual practice, not only in making 30 or 40 miles on foot, but doing it hungry." 3rd Indian Corps' GOC Heath would also go on to mention that in contrast with his own troops after milking, the Japanese had battle-tested NCOs leading sections. Another fundamental flaw with Malaya Command's doctrine was the emphasis on large unit direction. The reliance was on the colonels and brigadiers to direct the battle. Jungle War is, by its very nature, decentralized and involves small units patrolling and ambushing. Units in the bush, by necessity, have to be smaller and move like they're in the dark, without fixed points of reference. The sergeant leading a section ambush would should have been more emphasized as the driver of tactics instead of the officer in a tent 5-10 to 10 miles away. And generally, this approach was fatal as the Japanese adopted a version of, I'm going to mispronounce this, Auftragstaktik or Mission Command, which is a, which is a German uh, way of thinking uh, and doctrine uh, which has been disseminated in the U.S. post-war, uh, basically boiling down to, you know, as referenced in the Second World War, orders to German and Japanese units were objective-based, and it was up to junior officers to interpret them and execute them if a Japanese lieutenant saw an enemy unit routing, he could take the initiative and press the attack. Meanwhile, British units, at least in this stage of the war, used a centralized approach to decision-making, with reports filtering up, waiting to be interpreted, and orders disseminated down. This so-called OODA loop, OODA standing for Observe, Orient, Decide, Act, for Empire units was long, and the Japanese units in the campaign would be able to make multiple moves within the loop bringing with them a high tempo of operations. By the time Empire units received orders back to respond, the Japanese were already one or two more steps ahead. Japanese units were thus not just attacking unit British units physically, but also psychologically. Overwhelming commanders, sowing confusion and chaos, and eventually leading to units routing and breaking. This also highlights a difference in philosophy. Japanese units, like their German counterparts, accepted chaos as an integral part of warfare, and embraced it, and embraced a high tempo of operations and decentralization. British thinking, in contrast, sought to impose order on a battlefield, slowing down operations. In Malaya, the British didn't get a chance to slow down and force the Japanese to fight the set-piece battle that they excelled at. But it was not all bad news in Malaya command. The 12th Indian Brigade was at least partially trained for conditions in Malaya. The brigade was in command reserve, basically the fire brigade held back to counterattack or plug holes in the defenses. It trained in more realistic conditions and actually went out in the bush for a change. The 5th Punjabi made long route marches, and the 4th Battalion Hyderabadis spent two nights a week in the jungle, and the 2nd Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders practiced attacks with air units. The 2nd Argylls were arguably the best battalion in all of Malaya command. They were led by Lieutenant Colonel Ian Stewart, who was an extraordinary officer. He was the first British officer to land in France during the Great War and served throughout the war with distinction. He insisted that his Highlanders march hard and spend time in the jungle. Second Argyles once marched 116 miles in eight days. His unit didn't fear the jungle like other battalions in Malaya, and learned the axiom that the jungle is not your enemy if you know how to operate in it. One particular skill he imparted was compass reading, which is key when traversing a jungle with few landmarks. The men practice in small unit tactics, and three men drill through the jungle. The first man cuts down the bush with a machete, the second man widens the trail on both sides, and the third man checks the compass. Second Argyles tried to keep a pace of 1,000 yards per hour through the jungle. Stewart, in exercises, pushes battalion and executed maneuvers to win even if they were deemed unrealistic or, quote, unfair by the umpires. For his trouble, unfortunately, Stewart was labeled a crank by other officers who instead spent their time at raffles drinking cocktails. Malaya Command, instead of adopting the 12th Indian Brigade's example for the rest of the army, labeled it overzealous and the gains in training and experience largely stayed within the brigade and didn't spread to the rest of the army. Belatedly, Malaya Command did establish a jungle warfare school. And 28th Indian Brigade, in the eve of the war, began imparting small unit tactics and movement through the jungle at at least the platoon level. But this was done piecemeal and done far too late to have any significant effect. Once again, setting aside 12th Indian, and particularly 2nd Argyles, the Australians took a more aggressive and physical approach to training. Brian Farrell sums up the training and readiness situation fairly succinctly. Quote, The AIF trained with a more open mind and more initiative than most of the rest of Malaya Command. Percival singled out their two two brigades and the 12th and 28th Indian brigades as being well-trained for war. The latter was certainly not. Arriving in late September, it, it hardly had time to send three officers to Jitra for a week to learn about jungle tactics, let alone acclimatize the whole formation. But the other three brigades were in decent shape where it mattered most, doctrine and attitude the rest of the army was not. Malaya command would face the Japanese invasion with three reasonably well-trained but understrength brigades, with the rest of the army in considerably worse preparedness. Tools of the Trade So far, we have spoken of morale, training, and doctrine, which leaves us today's last topic, equipment. The Australian and Indian brigades were sent to Malaya with relatively low levels of weapons and equipment in order to speed up their arrival. Kaushik Roy states generally the Indian units had shortages of rifles, pistols, and other equipment. Newly raised Indian Army units couldn't be equipped with mortars and anti-tank rifles as this equipment was sourced from Britain directly, And and the Home Army's own needs plus the perilous shipping lanes meant units entered the field without this equipment. And none of this was missed in London. The War Office noted that Indian units were weak in automatic weapons and anti-tank guns as far back as 1940. Some Malaya Command units would not be fully armed and equipped until November 1941, one month before the war. This hit particularly at combat effectiveness as the men didn't have the time to familiarize and train with their weapons. The Frontier Force rifles, for example, wouldn't receive their Bren light machine guns, the principal squad-level firepower, until November. Most artillery units didn't receive their 25-pounders until then either. And keep in mind that on paper, at least, artillery was one of the few places Malaya Command was to have an advantage over the Japanese. Requests for 18-pounder guns for the beaches of northeast Malaya and mobile anti-tank units, think specifically Brigadier Key's Front at Kota Baru, were instead fulfilled by captured Italian Brita guns that were taken in North Africa. Key had one mountain battery to cover 15 miles of frontage, which included the invasion beaches and the three key RAF bases the Japanese needed to capture as soon as possible. In the Great War, a whole division was required to hold five miles of frontage in the Western Front, and in Malaya, Key was asked to defend three times the distance with one-third of the men. The 9th Division's other brigade further south had to defend 17 miles of beachfront. The 5th Sikhs were not issued anti-tank mines and got its light machine guns and 2-inch and 3-inch mortars just before the Japanese landings. The 2nd Argyles never got their 2-inch mortars before action began. And in the close-range jungle fighting that was coming, these light mortars would have been very effective in hitting back at the Japanese attacks. The 9th Indian Division noted that many of the men in the rear, defending unit headquarters, for example, were only equipped with pistols, not even rifles. The full complement of small arms for 9th Indian Division were slated to be delivered in 1942, which turned out to be after the Japanese invasion and victory in Malaya. Before the campaign, General Barstow of the 9th Indian Division confided to Gordon Bennett that he lacked both anti-tank and anti-air guns, and the division was low on anti-tank mines. Keep this in mind when we see the effect Japanese tanks will have on units of 3rd Indian Corps as they stare down armor with few countermeasures. Much talk was made of anti-tank training by General Heat's command, but it amounted little more than teaching troops to use Molotov cocktails. Coordination between infantry and artillery was not a subject to a lot of training. Ironically, the Malaya Command training officer found copies of pamphlets on how to fight tanks sitting at HQ, undistributed. He then asked for time to rewrite the manual to address Malayan conditions, but the Japanese invaded in the meantime. One note on anti-tank guns. By the beginning of the battle, each division in the command had an anti-tank regiment, primarily of the two-pounder guns which would have been effective against the Japanese tanks. But even this potential advantage was negated by the late arrival of the weapons and a lack of training. We have already talked about Malaya Command's lack of tanks partly due to two factors, right? Wishful thinking that Malaya wasn't suitable for armor, which is not all that different from what the French thought of the Ardennes Forest in May 1940, which is a different discussion, and London's decision to divert tank deliveries to the Soviets, who were at this time fighting at the gates of Moscow. Of course, as we know, the Japanese will employ some 200 tanks to brilliant effect. Ironically, Malaya Command without tanks was still heavily motorized, with most of the units truck-borne. In addition to trucks, Malaya Command would use armored cars for recon and securing lines of communication. No match for tanks, but perhaps they were better than nothing? As I mentioned on paper, Malaya Command would have an artillery advantage, particularly with its heavy guns, the 25-pounders, and the 4.5-inch howitzers from the First World War. This was unfortunately negated by two factors. One, the Japanese will pursue a dynamic and rolling campaign and avoid said peace battles where these guns could be trained on them. They wouldn't let the British set up a defense line and train their guns on them, preferring infiltration and turning of flanks to keep the Empire units in a state of chaos. In fact, in the coming battles, Japanese tanks would at times surprise British artillery at point-blank range, sometimes even unhooked from transport. The other factor to negating the artillery advantage was the lack of radios among the Indian brigades. The 8th Indian Brigade at Kota Baru had no radios amongst the battalions, so the units couldn't coordinate the defense. Only Brigade HQ had a wireless to communicate back to Division HQ. Motorcycles for messengers never reached the theater. So long-range artillery is largely useless without communication from forward observers. So in like in Napoleonic times, the Royal Artillery would come into play firing over open sites. Also keep in mind the lack of radios when we see the Japanese on the attack and the Empire units at a loss to stop them. The simple explanation is that commanders had no idea what was going on in the field, and junior officers were not empowered to take the initiative. And how did the Japanese approach equipping their units? They sensibly had their men kit out as light infantry. Light artillery and mountain guns were brought along in the campaign, but were expected to be used to effect really at Singapore, and in the instance the British were able to hold a line. For the most part, the Japanese would be constantly moving, negating the need for artillery to dig in and fire en masse. Japanese infantry would use their light machine guns and small knee mortars to great effect in ambushes and small unit attacks. Generally, the Japanese would use their infantry units to infiltrate and flank the enemy and rely on their tanks and air power when they couldn't. The secret weapon the Japanese would imply in Malaya were some 16,000 bicycles that they shipped with their landing forces. The bicycles would provide Japan a sort of bicycle blitzkrieg, giving the infantry speed. While Japanese soldiers marched lighter on their person than British Empire units, They carried more food and ammunition given their bicycles. This greatly lowered the strain on the already limited Japanese logistics lines. The hardiness of the Japanese soldiers was also demonstrated on their diet, where the men were often eating balls of rice with dried fish tucked in. This food was light and could keep in the field. In contrast, Malaya Command relied on tinned food for rations, which meant a steady and heavy delivery of food needed to be maintained to forward units, prime targets for the Japanese. And that's where we will leave it this week. In conclusion, generally speaking, the Japanese units equipped themselves to Malayan conditions, while Malaya Command was equipped along Imperial lines for general service, and even then it was under-equipped. One side in the coming battle took a pragmatic and well-thought-out approach, and it wasn't Malaya Command. But one thing to keep in mind is the state of affairs didn't apply to the whole army, and individual units and commanders in localized encounters could still make some difference as we will see in future episodes. The intro to Shadows of the Empire is Highland Laddie, courtesy of Bagpiper Germany on YouTube. Thank you for tuning into Shadows of the Empire. Please subscribe wherever you're hearing this podcast, review us on iTunes, and follow us on Instagram at Shadowsof underscore the Empire. Thank you.